Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. Sarah, how are you doing today? I am doing fairly good. I had an unplanned nap. Nice. Uh, so feeling good. Nice. How are you? Pretty, pretty well myself. No complaints? No no complaints that come to mind immediately. Oh, that's great. Mark it on the calendar. That's <laughs> great. Uh, well, what are we watching today? Maybe that will give us some complaints. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so today we are watching The Hideous Sun Demon, which I had on my calendar for the show as being a 1959 movie. But following the rules I used for Ed Wood's Plan 9 from Outer Space and Night of the Ghouls, I think it needs to be marked as a 1958 movie. Oh, okay. Gotta gotta maintain consistency with my own methodologies, you know? Yes. Yeah. This is like a weird, super indie, you know, 50s monster B movie that just like has managed to have something of like a legacy for whatever reason. Oh, okay. So if this is actually 1958, where does that put us? So for release date, we're talking about like a couple days after Revenge of Frankenstein. Okay. Um, But the story of this film really starts uh, back in 1957 when actor Robert Clark worked on the low-budget film Astounding She-Monster. Oh, Uh, Now, that film was shot in four days for $18,000 and was pretty much trash. We covered that movie in episode 231, Mm -hmm. and it's it's in the low top 10. I guess the bottom 10? um, It's currently ranked at number 249. Yeah, out of 259. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so so bad, right? (laughs) Bad movie. That's the one... With the alien girl in the sparkly bodysuit who walks backwards out of scenes because the back of her costume ripped and the characters go either into or out of a cabin as need be. So Robert Clark also thought that movie was trash, uh, but he was paid $500 and a 4% share of profits. And so when that movie came out and it was a hit on the late night and drive-in circuits and Clark started seeing like, a few thousand bucks from it over the next few months gave him an idea. <laughs> Maybe trash is good. <laughs> so Robert Clark was born in Oklahoma in 1920. His asthma prevented him from serving in World War II. And while he wanted to be an actor, he needed to get past his stage fright. So he did radio and stage plays in university. Uh, but rather than graduate, he hitched to California to break into the movie business. Hmm. You see, when you're shooting a movie, there's no live audience. Sure. Yeah. So it actually makes it fairly easy. Mm. He got a contract at RKO for three years where he appeared in like super minor roles uh, at the end of the 1940s. And then he went freelance in the 1950s. 
Uh, and we have seen him before in The Body Snatcher, Bedlam, The Man from Planet X, and of course, The Astounding She-Monster. So yeah, after the success, at least the financial success, <laughs> of Astounding She-Monster, Clark decided to direct his own low-budget sci-fi film. I mean, how hard could it be, right? Yeah, if that trash movie did it, I can do it. Right. So Clark and his friends Tom Boutros and Phil Heiner wrote a screenplay draft called Saurus, inspired by Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The original story was about a couple looking for uranium deposits in Guatemala who are attacked by a young man who turns into a reptile monster when he's in sunlight after his scientist father performed radiation experiments on him. All right, so there's a little bit, in my opinion, less Jekyll and Hyde and more perhaps uh, Wolfman. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Some alligator people. You know, a lot of the ideas that have been floating around uh, recently. Um, I think the most interesting part of this premise to me is that he turns into a monster in the daytime, which is less scary than turning into a monster at night, but much more economical to film. Yes. (laughs) So to crew the film, uh, Clark used the favorite methodology of low-budget filmmakers in Calgary, which is he went to the local film school. Ah. Uh, He approached film students from University of Southern California Film School, and one of the students, Robin Kirkman, liked Clark's idea and agreed to partner with Clark on making the movie. Students E.S. Seeley and Doanne R. Hogue rewrote the screenplay um, to be something, you know, more economical, and the project was budgeted at $10,000, which would be like a little over $100,000 today. Mm-hmm. Now, for comparison, um, my final student film project was a 22-minute sort of like thriller um, shot on 16-millimeter film. Uh, that cost between $11,000 and $12,000. Okay. Just, you know give you an idea of what's reasonable for a student film i suppose sure so clark uh starred in the lead role in addition to having you know writing directing and producing credits naturally well see the acting is what he knows how to do right i mean if you're gonna make your own movie and you're an actor you're gonna give yourself the lead right exactly most of the rest of the cast was portrayed either by acting students or by members of clark's extended family Clark's sister-in-law, singer Marilyn King of the King Sisters, uh, was set to play the role of Trudy, but dropped out due to her pregnancy. So Clark cast 27-year-old Nan Peterson, uh, based entirely on her voluptuous figure. Peterson was... You want to be a star, don't you? More or less. Peterson was a bathing suit model, and this was her first film. Later roles in her career included movies such as Louisiana Hussy and Shotgun Wedding. No relation to that new Shotgun Wedding with starring Jennifer Lopez? No, probably not. Clark continued to act in regular paying jobs uh, throughout production. And of course, all the students had classes. Uh, So the film was shot using rental equipment over 12 consecutive weekends. That, I feel like, would get expensive, ironically. Yes, um, because the more times you have to take out your gear, uh, the more expensive your movie's going to get. 
cast and crew were paid $25 a day, and the cast did their own hair, makeup, and wardrobe. So, you know, just bring some stuff from home. That's your costume. The shoot went through three cinematographers, and uh, it used, of course, real locations, um, including renting a boarding house for $25 a day to shoot in for, like, indoor locations. Okay. Other locations were, like, similarly paid for their use. You know, how much would you like us to pay you to come in and shut down your bar for four hours to film in, that kind of thing. Um, In order to hide that so many people on the crew were doing multiple jobs, right? Uh, Many of the students were credited under their real names and under a pseudonym to give the impression that there were more people in the crew. Yeah. Production designer Richard Casarino created the monster costume under the name Ben Serino for $500. By the end of shooting, the movie had cost $50,000. Oh, uh, so Clark isn't a very good producer. No. <laughs> Clark also had no distribution deals set up for the film, uh, which could have offset some of those costs. Um, so his brother in Amarillo, Texas, put him in touch with a drive-in theater owner there who agreed to premiere the film. And so the movie premiered in Amarillo under the title The Sun Demon on August 29th, 1958, in a double feature with Roger Corman's Attack of the Crab Monsters. Okay. So Clark's like, okay, cool, that worked. Uh, AIP, do you want to buy and distribute this film? AIP said no. (laughs) And ultimately, like, Clark wasn't able to really secure the deal he wanted to secure, which was a deal that would give him a percentage on box office, which was like, the whole thing that spurred this idea, right, uh, was the realization that that could get you a lot of money. Instead, um, it took Clark a lot of time to find a distributor after the film's premiere, and he eventually had to settle for just like a straight up, you sell us the distribution rights deal, we pay you once, and that's the end kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And so with that in mind, he sold it to a few different distributors to maximize his uh, income from the movie but isn't distribution exclusive so what you do in that case is you sell it uh to different regional distributors you know on the west coast it's going to be these guys and on the east coast it's going to be these guys for instance uh pacific international enterprises distributed the film in the u.s west coast beginning in january 1959 under the title the hideous sun demon And then Miller Consolidated Pictures uh, began showing the film starting in December 1959 on the East Coast and also in the UK. And then later, uh, the show was released again in the UK in 1961 by uh, DUK under the title Blood on His Lips. So as you can imagine, uh, today, The Hideous Sun Demon is in the public domain. It was either going to be in the public domain or the rights to release the movie were going to be a huge mess. Yeah, yeah, one or the other. Uh, Critical response to the film was negative, uh, calling out bad dialogue, poor acting, and terrible sound, among other flaws. And I've probably taken the time out to say it before on the podcast, but I'll say it again. If you are an amateur filmmaker, uh, the number one thing 
that is going to make your film seem unprofessional is bad sound. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't spend so much time on like, oh, my shots have to be set up perfectly and all the cinematography. And then like use the built-in mic on your video camera. Invest in good sound. Anyways, the film was highly rotated on 1960s late night movie TV uh, because it was, you know, cheap. And so it became kind of like a touchstone for like boomer genre fans because it was on TV all the time. Uh, Clark, you know, did make his money back and the film performed well at the box office, which was a fact that Clark was actually very proud of given the film's like humble origins. He was like, yeah, we made a movie with a bunch of students and it went out and did well. Like, how am I not proud of that? Mm-hmm. Genre fan and um, like memorabilia collector Bob Burns uh, bought the Sun Demon costume and uh that led to pioneering fan film creator donald f glutt uh being introduced to burns by fellow friend and sort of grandfather of fandom forrest j ackerman and that led to glutt who was at that time a usc film student uh creating a short film sequel with the support of the school Uh, called Wrath of the Sun Demon in 1965, uh, which starred Burns as the Sun Demon. Now, at the end of that film, the Sun Demon, if I'm remembering correctly, falls off a building to his death, and neither Burns nor Glut wanted to do the stunt, and also neither one wanted to put the costume at risk. So instead, I believe what Glut did was he like dressed up a G.I. Joe doll to look like the sun demon and then like pushed that off of a ledge and filmed it in slow motion. (laughs) I thought there would be some kind of like perspective trick, you Mm. know? In 1983, uh, the film's rights were bought by Wade Williams, uh, who is also the guy who had the rights to like night of the ghouls and a lot of films from this period. Um, His company owns Image Entertainment. And what he did with the rights at first was uh, he did a comedy redub of the film uh, with like the plot change to be about like this hapless sun lotion salesman and like the sun lotion has like horrible unforeseen side effects. Sure. Okay. Um, I think Jay Leno is one of the voices on it. Um, and it was released in 1983 under the title, What's Up, Hideous Sun Demon? That really gives some insight into the legacy of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. This wasn't a mystery science theater movie, uh, but it has been like a riff tracks movie. So, you know, it's definitely that kind of thing. And it has weight in the pop culture consciousness. Yeah. It's one of those like, so bad it's good kind of classics mm, i'll be the judge of that <laughs> for sure for sure <laughs> literally <laughs> so uh with it being public domain it's available on dvd from a lot of different places i recommend the 2003 image entertainment dvd because it has both the hideous sun demon and what's up hideous sun demon but uh you know you can find it from a lot of different places it's on youtube um it's on our youtube playlist it's also on tubi so you know your, your options to watch along are, are many and varied. 
Well, folks, hopefully you would like to watch with us. You can find our YouTube playlist on our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Hideous Sun Demon from 1958, directed by Robert Clerk. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Hideous Sun Demon from 1958, directed by Robert Clark. Ben, did this take you back to your film days? Like your student film days? Like a little bit. Okay. In that, like, I could imagine a bunch of film students running around shooting this. I think the movie's got some problems. Yes. And I think a lot of the things I liked about this movie should be also taken with like an asterisk that just goes to a note saying for a movie shot by students. Yeah, I appreciated knowing the context of who made this movie, how they made this movie, etc. Because without it, I would be like, this is a terrible, terrible movie. Mm. With it, I'm like, oh, damn. Okay. Yeah. yeah. These kids have some talent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm allowed to say kids, I'm 30. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's definitely not an amazing, fantastic film. I think it's a movie that is good for what it is. Sure. I think my student film, like my final project student film was better, but I think it has one major advantage. It was 22 minutes. Correct. Whereas this was a 22 minute script lengthened out to be a feature film yeah we'll talk about that um <laughs> why don't you tell us about what happens in the story which is certainly less than what the running time would apply absolutely so we are mainly following a gentleman by the name of dr gill mckenna uh when we open gill is being rushed to hospital after exposure to this new radioactive isotope that he's been researching his colleagues, Anne and Dr. Buchel, are worried about him. Uh, but the hospital is saying, like, you know, he seems to be fine, but that's weird. He should have radiation burns. He should have something to show for that experience. And he's fine. So they want to keep him under observation. Uh, as part of that observation, Gil is taken up to the roof for some, like, sun, you know. Fresh air. Fresh air cures all ails and because of the light rays of the sun uh he turns into this hideous creature it's sort of like this reptilian look to him now he runs inside and after being in darkness he kind of transforms back uh, and so it seems that there's like a a trigger from the sun's rays on his radioactive cells that trigger this kind of devolution mm -hmm. Because this movie is operating off of the then accepted theory that when in the womb, um, the fetus goes through all the phases of evolution uh, from like single cell to fish to reptile to mammal. And thus this radiation is causing him to devolve in mm -hmm. that way. It's very, this is like very 
Marvel comics. Like, I feel like you understand a lot more about like where Stan Lee was like coming from when you watch a lot of like, you know, cheap B movies from the period. Absolutely. Yeah. I kept thinking like, oh, is this like, was this once considered the origin of Spider-Man's lizard, you know? Yeah. I mean, that combined with like, I'm pretty sure alligator people was very lizard as well. Yes. Yeah. It's been established that Gil uh, was a little bit of a booze hound. Um, That's like the suspected reason as to why there was an accident in the lab in the first place. With this new condition and not being able to be out in the sunlight, Gil secludes himself away to kind of research what's going on, but also to drink his problems away. But as we all know, staying inside for long periods of time for like safety reasons can get really boring. And so Gil decides that he is going to go out driving uh, at night with sunglasses on. He ends up going to a nightclub, uh, or rather, he ends up going to this bar and meets the singer Trudy and her jealous love interest. I don't want to say boyfriend, but he he's kind of a love interest. Yeah, I mean... So I don't think it's like outright stated that this guy is like in the mob, but it's, it's pretty like, clear it's, that he's in the mob. Yeah, pretty heavily implied that this is like a mob controlled like establishment and that, you know, he is maybe Trudy's love interest and maybe also there's like a business arrangement going on here and, and so on. Now Gil ends up fighting that boyfriend and takes Trudy out uh on the town they have a really wild night they end up at the beach um due to him overzealously i will try to be as nice about that as possible uh some would also see it as um forcing himself on her uh she ends up going into the ocean like falling in um but they play it off as a laugh so that's why i'm like trying to give the movie the benefit like trying to explain it from the movie's point of view yeah i think like the best way to look at it is like he's drunk and horny and he goes for it before she's kind of like ready for him to go for it and then she tries to like push him away and then she like slips and falls into the sea not in like a serious (laughs) life-threatening manner she just falls into the water um and so now they have to wait for her clothes to dry Mm -hmm. and then they get a little closer and then she's ready to go down yeah fade to black and then when we open it's morning uh which is just great for gil he wakes up because of the sun's rays and he's like oh shit and just books it to the car drives home transforms on the way to his house and then runs inside this of course leaving trudy uh sort of kind of still naked on the beach Mm -hmm. with you know having to walk back to la yes now Anne, who has been (laughs) Gil's other love interest, uh, you know, the person he's going steady with, she shows up at his house just after he transforms back and gives him the good news that there is a foremost scientist on radiation poisoning coming to help him. This man is Dr. Hoffman. There's some dramatic like, oh, my life is over. Why bother doing anything? And no, don't give up, Gil. Your life isn't over. That sort of overacting bit, but uh, eventually Dr. Hoffman comes in and um, he's pretty sure that he can help Gil. Uh, He's examined the radioactive isotope. He's like, yeah, no, I think we can do this, but we kind of have to wait for a hospital room and for some equipment to arrive. So it'll take a couple days. 
but stay home because the more frequently you are exposed to sun, the more sensitive you'll become and you'll transform more quickly, but also it'll take longer for you to transform back. Uh, Dr. Hoffman, of course, has a very thick uh, Swedish accent, so he gives off some uh, Van Helsing vibes to me. Now, Gil does not stay home. You know, he tosses and turns and he keeps thinking about Trudy and he really needs a drink. So he goes out to the bar where Trudy was and charitably to like apologize to her, maybe. But the, his first thing on his list is to get a drink at the bar. Um, now, Trudy has been telling everyone what an ass he was. And so Trudy's boyfriend comes over and is like, let's take this outside, Busta. And they beat him up. Mm -hmm. Trudy is like into this and then suddenly is not because they are really beating him up. So she's like, oh, no, I got to take him to the hospital. Instead of the hospital, she takes him home and Gil wakes up in Trudy's apartment. It's daytime and... Trudy's like, yeah, I felt really bad. Let me open some windows for you. And he's like, no, I have sensitive eyes. And then Trudy's boyfriend shows up to be like, hey, babe, wait, why is this guy here? I thought you were over him. We beat him up, yada, yada. The boyfriend and Gil start to fight. And then the boyfriend pulls a gun because he is part of the mob. So he forces Gil outside into the sun to basically take him like, for a ride. For a ride and like either beat him up more or shoot him. And Gil in the sun transforms. They fight and Gil ends up killing the boyfriend. And then he runs all the way home. However, the police are looking for him because uh, he just murdered a dude. And the thing that's interesting as well is Gil, once he's back home with like Dr. Hoffman and Dr. Buechel, He's like, yeah, no, like when I'm the creature, I wanted to kill him. It wasn't just self-defense. And he's getting really freaked out by all this. But then the police come to get him. So he escapes. Anne and Dr. Hoffman go with the police to headquarters. And Dr. Buchel searches on his own in his own car to try to find Gil. With Gil on the run, uh, he goes and he ends up hiding at a uh, an oil field at the edge of L.A., And he meets this little girl who's like, oh, mister, I'll bring you some cookies. Goes back to her mom, tries to get cookies. The mom finds out, calls the police. And now with the police closing in, they chase Gil up a factory and he gets shot and he falls from very far up high. Uh, And that's the end. Dr. Buchel tries to like comfort Anne, but like what he says doesn't make any sense at all. And it was like tough to hear as well. So who cares? Uh, but that's the end. Mm-hmm. So let's run down some pros the about suit. this movie. The yeah. suit looked great. Yeah. The monster suit is not bad for a like low budget student film for something that was made for 500 bucks. Like it's not, you know, Gilman level but it's also like better than like most things that paul blaisdell made yeah it's honestly i think what i wanted from alligator people right yeah 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 or um that movie that was like the suit makers from creature from the black lagoon oh going the off and like their own uh, lighthouse of piedras blancas yeah or yeah 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 this was this was good i think the monster suit was really well done i think the smartest thing about it is like 
it's in multiple pieces. Yes. Like, so he can turn his head around. He can open and close his mouth. It's really interesting to see him open and close his mouth too, because they have some kind of like system. So it looks like it's like opening wider than what you Hmm. think it's going to be. And those teeth in there. Yeah. And um, the other smart call is like, the mask sort of ends around his like eyebrows and cheeks, I think. And he's like then blended up to his eye so that it's his like real eyes that you can see blinking around and stuff. So yeah, it's a really well done little monster costume. Mm-hmm. It makes me happy that it was preserved in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. Robert Clark's acting is definitely going for it. Yeah. It's better than what we see in astounding. She monster. There are times where like, I think He goes a little bit too far. Well, I think the issue here is that, like, it makes sense. He's the lead actor. He co-wrote the script. He's co-directing the film. So it makes sense to me that he would be like, yeah, I want to make this into an acting showcase for me, right? It's just that, like, genre-wise, especially around this time, we weren't really used to seeing characters, like, have intense psychological reactions to things around them like there's basically kind of like three kinds of people in these movies there's the kinds of people who are just like my jaw remains ever square uh or there's like you know women who scream yeah or there's like the shivering coward and that's like the three kinds of psychologies there are and so to have this guy who's got this more like interesting psychology where it's like he was already an alcoholic for some reason and now he's got this other problem and he's kind of like sympathetic but he's also kind of like not a good guy like he's kind of a womanizing jerk a little bit and now he's like a monster and he feels bad about that but also like you know so he's got all this psychology going on and It is overacting, but I think it feels even more out of place because of the kind of movie he's in. Yeah, and the actress who plays Anne tries to, like, meet Robert Clark where he's going, and that, I feel, also pushes it over the edge. Yeah, absolutely. The, like, Anne-Trudy dynamic, this isn't really, like, a pro, but um, it's very much like Anne's the button-up brunette who pines for him at work. And then like, you know, Trudy's a blonde with low cut dresses that are very tight. So, you know, Trudy doesn't have to do the kind of acting that Anne is asked to, but like, hey, good on her for like trying to, you know, meet Robert Clark with the intensity. And even if Clark, you know, kind of doesn't really hit the mark that he's going for, as you said, very different from what we're used to Mm -hmm. with people treating these movies as kind of like, I'm not going to try, you know? Yeah. I think there were moments where the visual language and I think the story itself also touched into film noir. Yeah. And like tropes around that. And I think that was a wise decision. They don't do it so much and so um, wholeheartedly to change the genre of this movie. It's still horror. But I think it was a wise decision to kind of quickly convey what we're supposed to get out of Gil going to the bar and seeing Trudy. Sure. I think the movie looks pretty decent for a student film. The sound is bad. The sound is bad. In exactly kind of the way you expect for an amateur film. And like there are times where the movie doesn't understand the 180 degree rule. There's times where like eye lines don't match up. But in terms of like lighting... 
uh, when we're like indoors and stuff, the movie like is trying to go for like some shadows and mm-hmm. some, some, you know, high contrast chiaroscuro and things. So, I like, found that the lighting on that part, mm. like for the film noir look and stuff was uneven. Mm. There were times where it's like, oh yeah, you're going for it. And then other times where like you missed an opportunity. And I think that is because you said they had like three different cinematographers right. over the course. So, um, I think that leads the cinematography to be a little uneven. Yes. Uh, but when they are going for it, it does look good. Yeah. Oh, um, and then like, you know, one last pro. Um, Nan Peterson is definitely a babe. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Trudy actress? Yeah, yeah. Okay. She, she's, she's, she's good eye candy. <laughs> I would also say... This actually is a good transition into what doesn't work in this movie mm-hmm. because there are moments of quick editing that I think the movie does well. Yeah. Um, so it opens with, I don't even know if I want to call it a montage, but it's quick edits and camera movement to show there's an alarm. The camera turns and we see a body being put into an ambulance and then we look up at the sun and then the credits roll. There's a moment when... Gil is running home after killing the boyfriend. And as he opens the door, Anne tries to open the door and the camera suddenly like literally moves into his creature face. Uh, and it's really effective to the moment, uh, to the point where I kind of jumped and it's not like, I guess it is kind of a jump scare. And so when there were moments of like, Oh, we're going to do stylish, quick editing. I thought it was very effective. Yes. A lot of those places come in moments where they need to indicate to you that like someone has been killed or someone's been run over with a car or something like that. But they obviously like can't do a stunt, um, you know, can't show a murder, don't have like the ability to show you gore or anything. So they do these like kind of stylistic, quick edit uh, jump cuts to kind of get across like the idea, like the scene where the cop gets run over is like, you know, he steps out in front of the car. We see the car come around the corner and then we kind of just like cut to a shot of like the hat rolling away down the pavement as you hear the guy scream or something. Yeah. Stuff like that was really effective. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also stuff that like shows that the students are aiming higher Mm. than what their budget is allowing. And I, I think stuff like that in student films is really interesting. Yeah. It's always cool to see like creative solutions come out of, you know, restrictions, right? Exactly. On the other hand, uh, this movie really could have used a lot more editing because it had such a languid pace. Yeah. You can definitely feel the padding for time here. Like I think this movie would make a weak 45 minute episode of the outer limits yeah. And instead, it's a 74-minute feature film. And there's just so little that actually happens. Like, there's a lot of driving to and fro. There's a lot of just, like, slow scenes of people walking around or the creature, like, running around or people going back and forth from a house to a shed to a house to a shed. And, you know when he goes to the bar and Trudy's singing her song, like we get the whole song. Yeah. To be fair, it was written for the movie, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it is still like, Oh cool. This is something that'll eat up three minutes. Yeah. And 
you know, I do still have to give credit to the people who made the movie because when we say, like, for example, when Susie, the little girl, hmm. is going over to the shed where Gil is and then we see the mom running out and looking and stuff, the camera isn't in exactly the same spot. They're kind hmm. of moving it a little bit, but it's also not like at ground level, just like, hey, just hold it here and have the people run right after another uh, each take we are up high we're trying to do some style here like even when we're in the middle of the police chase as Gil is going up uh, the factory up to the roof and all of that um, we're at a slight Dutch angle we see moments of like the policeman's hat falling down from up top high um, they're trying to do stylistic things mm -hmm. even as they are padding up time yeah absolutely I bring all of this up as like they're trying, but they aren't quite succeeding in moments. I think the other problem here is expectation. Yeah. So this is ostensibly like a sci-fi horror monster movie. Yeah. And Gil transforms into the monster like four times. The first time is just to establish that he that's turn. what happens. Yeah. No one's hurt. The second time is when he like wakes up on the beach. Again, no one's hurt. The third time he kills like one guy who is like a mafia dude. Um, and then the fourth time he kills some cops who have come after him. There's a whole thing that like you didn't mention in your synopsis because it's not important with like this little girl who finds him when he's hiding out. And then her mom finds the little girl. And like that's how the mom knows to call the police to say, oh, he's at this shack and blah, blah, blah. And we get the final showdown. But like to be in like a sci-fi horror monster drive-in movie and you've got a monster on the loose and like a sweet little girl and the girl's not even, it's not even that the girl's like not killed. The girl isn't even put in jeopardy. Like yeah. the girl's never even threatened by the monster. When the cops show up like untransformed Gil, who's in the dark of the shed, like scoops her up in his arms and like make sure she gets safe to her mom. The movie is very, very, very tame. And so with that in mind, the sort of languid scenes of driving around at night don't feel like, oh, this is style. This is conveying a mood. This is sort of getting your audience into a mindset. It feels like, you know, when are we going to get to the fireworks factory kind of stuff, right? Exactly. So you earlier said that you didn't think the film noir stuff in this movie was enough to say it's not horror. No, I mean, they didn't dabble in the film noir long enough that I, it would change the movie's genre. Right. So in my opinion, this is barely a sci-fi movie and it's even less a horror movie. Okay. I think it's, you know, obviously using those storytelling tropes to create a sense of like relevancy in the market in 1958. You know, this sense of like, this is what's selling at the drive-ins these days. But really, this is like a man on the run movie. This is sort of like, yeah, there's that film noir element. It's kind of like a seedy thriller drama because the monster stuff here is really almost incidental. You could almost remove it entirely from the story and not have a lot of difference. Like, let's say that this is a movie about a guy who comes down with a terminal illness and, you know, he's going to die in a few weeks and he has to like stay at home because he should really be resting 
and, you know, conserving his strength. And he's like, well, what's the use if I'm going to die? And they're like, well, there's a doctor who could maybe save you. And he decides, fuck it. And like goes out drinking and meets like a nightclub girl and gets in trouble with the mob and kills some dude. And now he's on the run from the cops and then, you know, suffers a tragic end. The fact that he's a monster, like a reptile guy is kind of incidental to all of this. Um, and I don't know if that's just because like Robert Clark is just kind of cynically using sci-fi and monster stuff to like be the selling point of his movie, but he doesn't know how to tell that kind of story. Like to the point where, you know, the standard, uh, man was not meant to know kind of sentiment at the end of the movie doesn't make sense. It's just some words in an order. But yeah, for me, like this felt like Robert Clark wanted to be in like a seedy noir drama about like a guy at the end of his rope and dressed it up as a monster movie to kind of sell it to drive-ins. So I see what you're saying. Um, I was thinking along the lines of, say, the Quatermass Experiment, Mm. where it's again a guy on the run. It has those moments of intense psychology That one feels like a horror movie, uh, whereas this one doesn't for you. Yeah, I think it's because no one is threatened at like any point in time in this movie. Um, You know, mob guy gets killed, but like he he gets choked out after like getting into like a scuffle with the monster. Um, The police guys who die are like running after this dude across a factory up and down stairs and firing guns at him. And he's like thwacking them off the sides of buildings and things. There's no moment where like an innocent person is in jeopardy. There's no moment where you're really afraid of anything um, other than that, like one moment where he kind of comes barging in the door. There's there's nothing really under threat. The closest thing to horror here is like the horror of, you know, I can't control myself. Like I'm turning into this monster and I don't know what I'm going to do while I'm in that monstrous form. But again, like he doesn't do anything in the monstrous form other than like be in some action beats. I think that's very fair. Even thinking back to the fly, Mm -hmm. which obviously does this much, much better of like, I'm losing control. I'm losing who I am. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that's where this movie was going to go eventually actually, but Uh, And like, he won't be able to turn back Mm -hmm. kind of thing. The moments of psychological distress aren't, except for very briefly, they aren't on, I can't control myself or anything like that. And the brief part that it is, is when he's like, I wanted to kill that guy, Mm -hmm. that mob guy. And it's like, it was still self-defense, my guy. Yeah, that guy sucked. Yeah. Like... Um, yeah. And, and structurally the story here is less like monster on the loose Wolfman Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. It's much more like, you know, the fugitive. I kept thinking about, uh, the Hulk. The Hulk, yeah, is another good example, especially because there's like a scene, a montage where he's like sadly walking around the countryside while sad music plays. Yeah. But like, you know, just the fact that a lot of our time is spent with like the cops being like, you know, have we chased him down yet? Like, where is he? So it just doesn't feel the thing is, is the movie doesn't feel like it's trying to frighten me. It feels like it's trying to get me to, you know, empathize with the plea of Robert Clark. I think that's fair. And then there's also the fact that like a whole subplot of this movie is kind of just dedicated to letting the director get some makeout time with a hot babe. Yeah, that 
that was a moment of like padding out time their their session on the beach for sure it was a bit much yeah like i get that you know it is integrated in the plot so much as like that leads him to killing a guy which is what leads for like the cops to go after him but it's just one of those things where when you know that the star wrote the script and is directing and like cast his romantic interest and that like she's just a knockout blonde bombshell babe and her character consists of I want to fuck you. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. just one of those things where like, you know, it gets a little like you wonder just how self-indulgent this is. Yeah, I think that is a very important point mm. to call out about this movie. Um, so it sounds like we aren't ranking this then. You know, I had a spot if you wanted to kind of like insist that this should be ranked. Um, but my opinion is that this isn't this isn't horror. It's definitely a monster movie for sure. Yeah. For the most part, as we've made our way through the 50s, we've done pretty well in identifying this is a monster and horror movie and avoiding just straight monster movies. Mm. Um, but, you know, sometimes they have to creep in somehow. Uh, out of curiosity, what was your spot? 242. Okay. I was looking between 100 and 113. Okay. Wow. I am super surprised you like this that much more than me. I cool. was basically just like, what was the movie we watched after this? Night of the Blood Beast? Okay. Right. Okay. For sure. Uh, um, but I like this acknowledgement that it tries to cash in on horror without actually doing it. Yeah, it's this is a this is like I said, this is a fugitive movie um, with like a monster in it, you know. I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. Well, folks, um, we won't be ranking this movie, but if you would like to see where we ranked the movies that we might have mentioned today, you can head on over to ScreamScenePodcast.com and find the full list of movies. If you would like to contest this non-ranking or any film that has been ranked uh, and its position on the list, you can reach out over ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com, reach out through our Ask Box on Tumblr or over Twitter or other social media sites. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed, and you can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review. Tell your friends about the show. Help us grow the community of people who enjoy this weird little program that we do. Um, If you have the means and would like to financially support what we do here, you can do that by heading on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month, but patrons at the five and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content and patrons of all levels get to vote in our monthly poll to determine our horror adjacent bonus episode for that month. Looks like February's is going to be a Bugs Bunny short. Uh, So that's going to be a lot of fun. What are the choices for March looking like? Uh, Well, for March, the selection was basically like, oh, we're leaving the 50s soon. Okay, here are some 50s options. Okay. And the one that is currently leading is 1954's Them. Right, which is a movie that I decided was not horror in a kind of, I think, semi-controversial choice i think there's a lot of people who maybe would slot that movie into horror but i have very distinct 
reasons why I don't think it is. And if you want to hear those reasons, you can head to patreon.com slash screamseedpodcast and vote. Well, Ben, what are we watching next week? Next week, Sarah, we return to the United Kingdom for Hammer Horror production of The Mummy. Ooh. Starring Christopher Lee as Karis and Peter Cushing as John Banning in a movie that was officially licensed from Universal this time. Oh. And is a sort of amalgamation of 1932's The Mummy and then The Mummy's Hand and The Mummy's Tomb. Like those three movies kind of put in a blender. Interesting. I'm very excited. Yeah, it's, I think, one of the best mummy movies, at least of the, like, horror mummy movies. <laughs> um, so I'm pretty excited to talk about it. Great. Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.